Uh, take your Bibles, let's go to the book of Mark, chapter 8. And I'm rejoicing this morning to return to the book of Mark. Um, as you know, we last year started a series through the book of Mark. And we um, began into the, the question was in front of us, who is Jesus? And that question was put in front of us for about eight and a half chapters of the book of Mark. And this new rabbi comes on the scene. He begins to travel from place to place, performing miracles, preaching sermons, um, and all the things that are happening, and now gathering a following of 12 men around him. And the question was on everybody's mind, who is Jesus? And even in our text this morning, Jesus is going to ask the question, who do men say that I am? And of course, we walk through that understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah that would come. And that's the one that was promised to the nation of Israel would come. But now I want to ask you the question this morning, or we begin the series this morning, and we're going to entitle this series, The Mission of the Messiah. And this was the uh, misunderstanding of why the Messiah came. And so often, as is the case, we get part of the truth and we miss the rest of it. Uh, or we think we learned something and then we stop there. And the apostles are on a journey of learning not just who is Jesus, he's the Messiah, but what is the mission of the Messiah now going forward. And so if you have your Bibles there and you would like to stand with me, I would ask you to do so. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 22. And we're going to read down through the end of the chapter. And we're right here in the middle of chapter 8 of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 38. And read with me if you would. Actually, I'm going to read verse 21 because I'll reference it in a moment. Uh, verse 21, and he said unto them, how is it that you do not understand? And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands upon him, and asked him if he saw light, saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. And after that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away in his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell any in the town. Tell it to any in the town. And when Jesus went out, his disciples, into the town of Caesarea Philippi, by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And he answered, John the Baptist. Some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged him that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter looked, uh, took him and began to rebuke him. And when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospels, the same shall save it. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? 
Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to open it together. And Lord, I pray, Father, that what is said today would be an encouragement to your people, that you would challenge us from your word this morning, and uh, that, Lord, your, your word would go forth. And we know, according to the promise of your word, that it will not return void. And we rest in that this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Often when I'm trying to title a sermon, I'll look through the text and I'll try to find maybe a, a quippy line in the text that kind of sums up what's going on here. And there are several things that could be brought out here uh, in that he says to Peter in verse 33, you savor not the things that be of God, uh, but the things that be of man, um, and savoring the things of God. But I think really in verse 21, we find the summary of it, how is it that you do not understand? How is it that you do not understand? The apostles have seen the miracles of Christ. They've seen all of this unfold. They've seen him put his power on display. And now we walk in to this point where Jesus is going to put them to the test and ask them the question, who am I? Who do men say that I am? Prior to this inner interface, we see a, a story of a healing that is only recorded for us in Mark. No other gospel has this exact story in it. And uh, we see Jesus coming to the man at Bethsaida, and there's a blind man, and they bring a blind man to him and besought that him to touch him. Uh, the English here, the translation in the English kind of leaves it a bit harsh. Uh, the picture here is that he spat on him or he spit on his eyes. Uh, we don't get the image here that he, you know, literally spit from his mouth to the man's eyes, but uh, the, the, the language would tell us that he put saliva on his hands and touched his eyes and laid his hands on his head. And uh, it is very well known in Edersheim in his uh, life and times of Christ tells us that uh, spittle was often considered to be a salve for the eyes and to be used even in medicine. And it's an interesting way of doing that. But Jesus uh, putting saliva on his hands touches the man's eyes and asks him a question. And it's a unique miracle here because it is not this miracle where Jesus touches him and he's clean or he says, be open and his eyes are open. But a matter of fact, we see it happen on two occasions where Jesus touches him in this account. And he says to him, he says, do you see anything or see, do you see aught? Verse 24, he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. Now, in this, we might assume that the man knew what a tree looked like because he saw trees. And so it's very possible the man's eyes were injured somehow, and that's why he was blind. And so he had some reference to what a tree was. And, and so this man now says, yeah, but I, I see men moving around, but it looks like a bunch of trees moving around. In other words, he didn't see clearly. He didn't have full comprehension of what he was looking at. And after that, he put his hands on him again and his eyes, and upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly. I think it's an interesting uh, placing of this story and that it's unique to this account because now Jesus is going to look to the apostles and ask, do you see clearly? And they're going to say something like, well, we see Jesus uh, is the Messiah, but they don't see who the Messiah is. They saw men as trees walking. They saw impartiality of what was happening, but they didn't see the full revelation of what was taking place yet. 
And we see the progressive revelation of the gospel opening up to these men as they begin to comprehend that a man had come to be the savior of the nation of Israel. Yea, he was the son of God, but now the son of God was called to sacrifice and to die and to open up the gate to the entire world. And that was something they did not have their head around. They saw it only dimly. And so we see the question that Jesus asked this blind man, do you see anything paralleled with the question that he asked the apostles, who do you say that I am? And they said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, I I question in my mind, why is it that we do not miss the truth? Why, Why do we miss the truth so often? You know, when I, I'm looking here, when Jesus is talking in, in our text later on, uh, he spake uh, the saying openly, verse 32. He spake that saying openly, and the, the word openly is not to, do, to say how widely it was published, but how clearly it was spoken. It was an open statement. It was not a statement that was convoluted, but it was a statement that was clearly stated to the people around him. And literally, I believe the ESV translated, he was stated it plainly. It was a plain statement to the men, and he's saying, this is what is going to happen. I am going to be crucified. I will rise again. And this statement is there, and it's a plain statement. So why why do we miss the truth so often? Why do these men miss the truth? They had walked with Jesus now for over a year, and the message of the gospel has been stated to them in no uncertain terms, and yet they turn and reject it straightway. Peter, I mean, you you, you picture this in your mind. The Lord Jesus Christ has said, hey guys, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be rejected of Rome and of the Pharisees, and they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised from the dead. And Peter says, Jesus, come here for a minute. Come here. And he takes him off to the side. He said, look, you need to stop that kind of talking. All right? It's not going to happen. We got your back. You don't have anything to worry about it. And it's almost like he thought Jesus needed a pep talk. And he's being rebuked for his thought of Jesus being crucified. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. And what a rebuke that Peter has. These men were confronted with the truth. And when I read this, I have to ask the question, what am I missing? What's staring me in the face that I'm missing? What is it that's looking right at me but I can't see? And I think one of the things that we could do to check our own hearts is when we miss the truth, ask the question, are we listening? Are we listening? I think too often our mouths get ahead of our ears, and we're not slowing down to just listen, to listen to the Word of God as we read it, and not just checking off a box to get through today's reading plan, but listening and hearing what is being said. I think number two, the reason we miss the truth is often we are not willing to challenge what we already believe. Say this, if we're going to study the Bible, let's lay the Bible open and say, Holy Spirit of God, show me what I need to know. And let me lay aside my biases and my understandings and let the Word of God be my teacher. You know, I think we have so much pride that doesn't allow us to admit we don't know something. And so we feel like that the body of truth we have is what we all, all will ever need. And we're not willing to admit that we need to learn something. I think often we make statements rather than ask questions and we're trying to impress trying to appear that we already know. And I think these fit all of what the apostles were going through at this moment. So now we come to this text. We know who he is. We know that he is Jesus, the Son of God. 
he makes it very clear, thou art the Christ. The word Christ is the anointed one. The one who is anointed, thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And in another text, Jesus responds to him, flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And so now we see who he is and we've listened to what he teaches. Uh, For some we hear what we wish to hear though. And often in our own minds, if we follow him, we hear this. If I follow Jesus, everything's going to be well. There'll be no problems. There'll be no pain. There'll be no more suffering. I'll not taste the bitterness of death. I'll not, it'll all be sunshine and roses from this day forth. And somehow or another, we'll just kind of prance our way into the kingdom and we'll escape the fiery darts of the enemy, untouched by the curse of sin on this earth. And though that sounds appealing and much of our Christianity would even applaud that thinking, it does not fit what the scripture says or what our Lord says. So Jesus is rebuked. I would say this morning, if we wish wish to rebuke the teaching of our Lord, we have to get in line because Peter's already trying to rebuke him. Peter is rebuking him and spouting the lie and the corruption of Satan himself as he looks at him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. So then I want to break this down, if I could, the balance of our text this morning into three uh, sections, the teaching of the Lord, the protest of Peter, and the call of discipleship. And so very quickly this morning, we walk through this together. First off, the teaching of the Lord. In verse number 31, he says this, and he began to teach them, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now make no mistake, some would tell us that the resurrection was not taught prior to the crucifixion. It's right here. The resurrection is in front of us. It is told to these men. And by the way, in case you're wondering, the resurrection was mentioned by David. David knew of the resurrection. He prophesied the resurrection would come. Isaiah prophesied the resurrection would come. All of the nation of Israel knew there was a resurrection coming. And remember Mary and Martha when their brother died. He says, do you believe your brother will rise again? Yes, Lord, we believe he'll rise in the last days. They were looking for a resurrection, but they didn't understand that it wasn't a resurrection they needed. It was the resurrection they needed. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. I must be three days in the earth. I will rise again. All of these must have been far into the ears of these Jewish men. Our Messiah is going to suffer. Our Lord is going to be killed. How is it that the Christ could be killed? With Christ, my ultimate good is secure, and my current walk is always in grace. But there is suffering on this side of eternity. Even for faithful, good believers, there is suffering. And Jesus is demonstrating that he too is suffering. He's demonstrating that suffering is not foreign to those who are living obedient to the Lord. I think oftentimes if we're not careful, we can look at the suffering that comes into our world and throw our hands up and say, God, why? Why the suffering? And God has a purpose for it. We may not always see the purpose for it, as the apostles here do not see the purpose for the Messiah's suffering, but it was for their salvation and good. And by the way, oftentimes our suffering is for someone else's salvation and good. And God is using our pain to make us ministers for their good. We see Peter's protest As I mentioned earlier, this one always interests me of how Peter would be so bold, and yet we find him very bold here. 
And he spake this, this, this saying plainly, verse 32, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Wow. I mean, we've all been rebuked at some point. We've all been pulled aside and told that we were out of line. We've all had somebody sit us down and say, now look, how could you have handled that differently? Can you imagine being the one with the audacity to grab the Lord Jesus Christ and sit him down and set him straight? Or so he thought. You see, Satan's ploy is to convince us that we can do as we please and have the results that we choose. You see, Satan has encouraged this same goal uh, all along. If you remember way back, even in the Garden of Eden, you shall be as gods knowing good and evil. You shall be as God knowing good and evil. And it was a promise that they would get to this goal uh, that that he was setting out for them. And he said, here's a different way to get there. When Jesus comes in his earthly ministry and he's tempted by Satan, he says, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Well, how many of you understand that Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords? But he's promising the end, the same end result by a different means, knowing that if you pursue the different means, you'll never reach the goal. And here again, he's promising the Lord. Or the, the, the thing is, okay, Lord, you, you don't need to go to the cross to, to win this. You don't need to go to the cross to be the Messiah. You don't need to suffer to be the Messiah. He's missing the plan of God. You see, Satan's boy is to convince us to do as we please. God says, he's my eternal God. Man is looking for the immediate comfort. God, his statement here is lose your life and you'll find it. Man says, hold on to what you have and don't let it go. Seize the moment. God has the mentality that says, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The man says, just a little bit more. God says, stand before me unashamed. Man said, stand before man unashamed. You see, God has a different value system, and he says to him, do you not savor the things of God? That word savor here that that Jesus is using toward Peter, he said, you are savoring the things of man, not the things of God. And that word savor here is the same word that is used in Philippians 2 and 5 when he says that you do not have a mind or a mindset on the things of God, a hunger or a desire for it. You see, it is satanic influence that denies the God-ordained suffering, the life of believers, that somehow another God can use that for his glory. You see, man wishes for a resurrection, but not for a cross. We're not willing to go through the cross. You see, I would say this morning that when we think of suffering and we think of the struggles that we have to face and that come our way, what do we find? We do not find a world that says it is all, you know, lollipops and rainbows and flowers every day, and they're walking through fields of sunshine and everything's going to be perfect, but we find a reality that there is suffering and there is sickness and there is death and there is loss and there is rejection and there is pain, and yet how do we walk through all of that still with joy and with peace? Let me say this first off. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. He has taken the greatest suffering that will ever be on himself already. The greatest suffering that has ever taken place was taken upon our Lord Jesus Christ. What we face now is light and but for a moment when you compare it to the eternal reward that is coming. There's no way we could take the pain of this world and consider it greater than the glory that's about to be revealed. 
And so when we hold to these truths, the greatest suffering took place on the cross, and Christ took that for me. What I'm suffering now is not worthy to be compared to what is coming, and it is but for a moment. And here's one of the most encouraging things, is that he has promised to go with me through the suffering. He never leaves us or forsakes us. We walk. You understand that our Lord Jesus Christ went into the wilderness alone. And he faced the temptation. When he hung on the cross, he hung there on the cross between heaven and earth. Every man had rejected him. And he cried out with his voice and said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why did he cry that out? So that you and I can claim the proverb promise from the book of Hebrews that says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And so in the midst of the valley we go through, This satanic lie that somehow or another, if we're doing what we should, we'll never face suffering, misses the work of the Savior and how that he suffered so that we're never forsaken. And so we see the protest, and finally we see the call of discipleship. The call of discipleship is not one that should be taken lightly and not one that in the next few moments we can do it full justice. But I want you to see these words and let them rest in your mind this week. Verse number 34, and he called the people unto him with his disciples, and he said unto them, Whoever, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall save it. But what shall a man profit if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? These words are, lose your life, you'll gain it. Save your life, you'll lose it. It's this paradox of the discipleship that we're called to. You see, all that I'm laying down to deny myself is I ask myself, what is it that I value? What is it that I hold dear? What is it that defines me? Am I willing to lay that down? Am I willing to lay my life down? Am I willing to let my name be drugged through the mud for the sake of Christ? Am I willing to be mocked for the sake of Christ? Or is my name more important? Is my, my lack of shame before men more important than my, lack of, than my shame before God? Here he's challenging our thinking to consider this world is not all there is. I often am aware of the fact that my greatest hindrance in discipleship and in growing is not other people. It's me. I'm my greatest hindrance to deny Mike Montgomery, to deny what I want, to deny my desires and my wishes and my dreams to say, God, here they all are. I'm laying them down. You be God. I'm your servant. He said, if you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself. Think of the song that we sing some on occasion and a great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on my, all my pride. We think of this, we're the whole realm, these words, we're the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. 
And he's calling for that kind of self-denial and discipleship. Not a discipleship that says, I'll do as I please and fit God in where I have room for him. He not only says, deny yourself, then he says, take up your cross and follow me. The cross, there's no way we can look at it and think of anything but suffering. There's no way we can really look at the cross and think of anything but shame. In the context of what it is written here, Jesus is saying to a group of men that are Jewish men, what I want you to do is I want you to take up that Roman symbol of execution and humiliation and put it on your back and follow me. I want you to go outside the city. I want you to bear the reproach of those that are maybe even at that very moment hanging upon a tree. And I want you to follow me. It was a symbol of shame. It was a symbol of suffering. It was a symbol of man having rejected us. No doubt we can call it the burdens of life. And yet in all of this, we understand too that the cross is our greatest gain. The burdens that accompany our path aid us to the denial of self. It is the pains of life that God brings into our life that shows us how much we need him. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. When I am weak and I understand and the pains of sickness and and suffering and grief and even anxiety that overwhelms us, all of those things should not point us to look to this world to find a solution, but look to the cross and say, Lord, this is the cross you've given to me. And actually this cross is a blessing because it shows me how much I need you and how much I should long for the world to come. What a stark reminder. These crosses come, and I think of the songwriter, shall I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me unto God? Though I must fight if I would win, increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. These songwriters that are writing these words are doing so from a place of pain, understanding that God is the one that sustains us in the midst of it. And so he concludes in verse number 38, Whosoever therefore will be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I would say, church, we have a mandate from the very lips of our Lord to cease fearing how man views the gospel and to stand boldly before men so that we do not have to hang our heads before him. Because one day we're going to stand face to face with him. And one day the crowds will not matter anymore. The political correctness will not have any weight anymore. And we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that day, I want to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And on this day, let us stand with him and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Both before Rome and before Jerusalem, Paul said, I can stand there boldly, and I don't care what the Jewish culture says, I don't care what the Gentile culture says, this is who Christ is, this is where I stand. He is the Messiah, he is the crucified Lord, he is the risen Lord, and this morning, church, he is the coming King. And you and I can stand boldly in that truth, resting in who he is.
So I challenge you as we walk through this to answer the question and see him unfold the question, the ministry of the Messiah. I hope you'll join me on that journey and ask yourself the question as you read ahead. What is his ministry accomplishing in my life today? How am I walking unashamed of the Messiah today? Would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient. And Lord, I pray, Father, as we begin this stepping into the ministry of the Messiah, that, Father, your word would have preeminence, that, Lord, your word would take front and center. Lord, I pray, Father, as we walk through these pages of Scripture, that we would do so mindful of one another and mindful of you, that, Lord, we would do so with a hunger, not just to reinforce what we know, but to learn what we've missed. And we'll praise you for your mercy and for your grace. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it.